Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. One of the most important institutions in the discussion of catastrophic global warming is the IPCC, which stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, we've discussed the IPCC a little bit and often indirectly on the show, but we've never delved into it. And interestingly enough, really the media hasn't delved into it. There hasn't really been much explanation or coverage of the IPCC. It's just assumed that since it's the UN, uh, for whatever reason, that must mean it's, it's really good. Um, but there is one author who has addressed the IPCC in a lot of depth, and I read her book about six months ago, and I thought it was really interesting, and so I wanted to bring her on the show. And so that's our, our guest, is the author of interesting title, The Delinquent Teenager Who Was Mistaken for the World's Top Climate Expert, written in 2011. The author is Donna La Framboise. I think that's actually a pretty decent pronunciation, given my lack of French or French-Canadian uh, background. Anyway, the, the title, as we'll go to in the interview, I'm sure, reflects the idea that this is that one aspect of the IPCC and one one, although certainly not the only flaw of it, is that it tends to elevate people with no specific scientific expertise into unquestionable monopoly experts on a topic. Anyway, we will get into that and many other issues with our interview with Donna Laframboise. So we'll see you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now on Power Hour is Donna Laframboise, author of a book with a very interesting title, The Delinquent Teenager Who Was Mistaken for the World's Top Climate Expert. Donna, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So your book is about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And as you mentioned in the book, this is an interesting body for many reasons, uh, one of which is just that it is taken very obviously as this supreme authority, and you refer to their their document that they released, which I'll talk about, as the climate uh, Bible. And yet in this in this book, you question that authority, which seems like everyone should be doing once you see it questioned. But how did you get interested in this topic? Well, I used to work as a journalist. And then at a certain point in time, I decided to do something else with my life. And I didn't write for about seven years. Um, but I still, you know, read the read the, the newspapers. And, um, and about a year, around year seven or so of my retirement from journalism and my, um, you know, d- the other part, the new part of my life, I started to get very irritated by the climate change um, coverage that seemed to be everywhere. And so this was about 2009. And it seemed like I couldn't open a newspaper or turn on 
the radio or the television without be you know hearing about how climate change was going to um, you know just um, you know be catastrophic for for the human race and because I had this background in journalism it seemed to you know my my kind of um, radar detector went off and it seemed like the coverage was very um, shallow the analysis was very shallow it seemed like you know the reporters were rather than being properly skeptical they were just kind of repeating this green dogma. Um, so I started paying a closer attention and started doing some research of my own. And my background was investigative journalism. And I soon became quite, um, quite astonished because it didn't take me any time at all to realize that there was actually a very active debate out there amongst people who study climate as to what's going on, that there is not simply one point of view. And I was quite offended that journalists were only reporting on one point of view. And so initially, I started a, a little website called noconsensus.org. And my position at the beginning was, I don't know who's right and who's wrong. But it is absolutely inappropriate for the public to be told that there's only one point of view, only one scientific point of view about climate change, because that's not the case at all. There are very well-respected, credentialed, experienced, sincere scientists who actually take very strong issue with the idea that the climate is, um, is um, you know, dangerously, um, uh, that we are dangerously risk from the climate and and that human beings have have uh, changed it in an alarming and ca potentially catastrophic way. So the more I learned about this issue, and I knew nothing about it before, I had never written on the environment as a journalist previous to this, the more I learned, the more this uh, organization, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, kept coming up and everyone treated it like it was this, this, as you say, this supreme authority. It was the final best word on climate change. It was a UN body. And, and so, you know, and it, it's, you know, it, it needed to be um, respected and it, its word was, was, you know, certainly cited by governments all around the world as, um, as, um, you know, the basis for all sorts of climate change laws and regulations and taxes. So I just started doing a bit of research about this body. And quite to my surprise, I found out that almost everything we are routinely told about this body by the media is utterly, totally wrong. It's, it's nonsense. They, they have this great PR, but none of the PR turns out to be true. So stepping back to the issue of, of your background being an investigative journalist, I'm wondering if that gave you an almost inherent skepticism of a lot of journalism, because I've done a certain amount of investigative journalism, and what I found is whenever I, I explore an issue in depth, and this is also true for history, uh, I learned that things can be unbelievably misrepresented. So when I see a new story about, say, some corporate criminal uh, I'm very skeptical. I mean, I, I know I don't know, but I don't act like I know based on these kinds of reports. 
Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it is the job of a journalist to be skeptical, to never take anyone's word for anything, to never take anyone at face value, because one of the things that happens when you're a journalist is people try to use you. They try to get you to to tell the world their side of the story. And, you know, usually there's more than one side of the story. So journalists are supposed to be skeptical. But when it comes to the environment and it comes to climate change, most journalists, I'm very sorry to say, have just, you know, they've signed up to be activists. They think their job is to promote the scare stories rather than to subject environmental organizations and organizations like the IPCC um, to, to proper scrutiny. And that does not serve anyone because one of the things that I found once I started, you know, quite accidentally, I, the, the IPCC became my, the focus of my research and I ended up writing a book about, about the IPCC. And that was not what I started out um, thinking. That was not the project I thought I was working on at the beginning. But everything I learned about the IPCC told me that this was an organization that had never received proper scrutiny from external sources like the media. Because if it had, it's 25 years old now, if it had been receiving proper scrutiny, if people had called them on their BS um, 10 or 15 years ago, they would be a better organization today. So when journalists fall down uh, on the job, you know, the results are not good for, for, for all of us, including the organizations that should be subjected to the scrutiny. So you mentioned the issue of, of when you're a journalist, people try to use you. And my sense of journalists is also that they try to use themselves in the sense of that they, many of them have a certain ideology and they go into journalism with the idea that it's their job to share that correct, in their view, ideology uh, with the world. But in any case, it's interesting to me that the way we take, say, this issue of, well, all scientists agree that there's global warming, which is this sort of terribly imprecise and useless statement that's designed to make us believe, well, everyone accepts there's catastrophic global warming, and everyone accepts that the solution is to shut down the fuel of industrial civilization. It's just really, it's interesting, though, that there's not much inquiry into where the journalist got that from. And so the consensus amounts to, journalists have told me that there's a consensus. If you ask them, well, what scientists and who exactly is in the IPCC? Like, is it just they took the, and what are their credentials? And what, what is the track record of climate science? Has climate science ever made any meaningful uh, predictions? It's just interesting how the journalists are this incredibly influential locus of influence that we're just taught to take as, well, if they say the scientists agree, obviously the scientists agree, even though they're sort of necessarily not fully educated about the issues. They're easily manipulable and they're easily uh, biased in their own direction. That's right. They are very gullible. Um, you know, all of us, I think, tend to believe stories more readily if the story... Um, you know, kind of confirms our experience of the world or our worldview, you know, so journalists are just people and they do it like the rest of us. Um, but you're right. Um, 
you know, and and the the thing about having a worldview, and many journalists are, you know, left of center in their worldview, um, is that you can be blind. You can be blind to other possibilities, and and yeah, you you are subject to confirmatory bias. So you know, I'm I have to say that as a journalist, I am ashamed at how um, my profession has covered climate change because the journalists have decided to pick winners. And that is not the role of a journalist. Journalists lack the scientific training to know which group of scientists is correct here. We have our job, I believe, is to inform the public that there is a debate, that there are different points of view, and it is the role of the public to make up its own mind as to what's going on and who they believe. It is not the role of journalists to decide what, who should be believed and who should be silenced and, and um, you know, disappeared. And essentially, that's what's going on. Many journalists have decided to disappear any scientist who doesn't, um, you know, conform to a very narrow perspective on climate change. And that's utterly wrong. I also think just uh, j- journalism, as you can probably tell, interests me just because I've studied it a bit. And I think it's 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 practiced off in the wrong way and, and taken the wrong way. I think there's also a huge amount of of bias in and deliberate manipulation in just the fact that this is considered the issue of our time with respect to energy. I mean, why isn't the issue of our time that the use of say of coal and oil in China and India has added seven years to an individual life over the past few decades? You know, that's billions of people with extended lives. I mean, there's, there's many, many stories about energy and there's a, there's a very clear history and and Richard Linson in one of his articles tells it very well in terms of there is a specific movement within meteorology or atmospheric science that deliberately got government attention, that got media attention, that infiltrated different bodies like National Academy of Sciences that of course dealt with IPCC. And they made it the issue as the defining issue of our time is whether fossil fuels, or is the extent to which allegedly fossil fuels are causing catastrophic climate change, and the extent to which they should uh, restrict them. But the, the journalists have sort of taken that framework as, well, obviously the issue is how quickly do we get off fossil fuels versus what is the actual relationship between these and human life based on the evidence? And, you know, and I agree with 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 all of that. Um, and all I would say is that society at large goes through intellectual fads, right? There was a time before the year 2000 when we were all supposed to be um, concerned about Y2K and, you know, the, the clock was going to strike midnight and elevators were going to stop and the hospitals were going to, um, you know, lose power. And, you know, there was this mass hysteria around that. And before that, it was, you know, acid rain. And before that, it was global cooling. And before that, it was po- the population bomb. Um, you know, there are these intellectual fads and journalists are at do two things. One of them is they are subject to intellectual fads like everyone else, but they play a very important role in in promoting and spreading those intellectual fads. So, yeah, um, you know, you, um, there's there's not much I can say that's going to make um, journalists look good over climate change. So let's let's go to the the IPCC. First of all, can you give us just a summary of what? this organization actually looks like? My guess is 99% of people have absolutely no idea what it even, what this term even refers to in reality. 
Okay, well, the IPCC is a UN body, and that's very important to understand. So, you know, individuals, individual scientists are not members of the IPCC. Members of the IPCC are actually nations. So any country that belongs to the United Nations, and I think there's 195 of them, can send delegates to IPCC meetings. And the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which again underlines the fact this is an organization of nations. Now, what it's supposed to do, what we are told it does, is that governments um, recommend their top scientists, um, they nominate scientists, and that the IPCC assembles a group of scientists. Um, you know, there are three different um, categories of authors. So there are coordinating authors, and there are lead authors, and there are contributing authors. And if you add up all of those people, you get to, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 to 2,000 people who work on a report. And every six or seven years, the IPCC produces a massive report. Last time it was 3,000 pages long. And that report is supposed to be a an assessment of what does climate research tell us? What does it say is going on? Um, how might this affect our world and how should we respond? So the report is actually three smaller reports and, you know, 3,000 pages. Who reads that anyway, right? Um, so then they produce something smaller called, um, you know, summaries for policymakers, which are about 25 pages. And that's what all the journalists and all the politicians read. So these scientists who get nominated, we have been told for many, many years that they're the world's top scientists. That, in fact, is not true. There are some very prominent and eminent scientists who have participated in, in helping the IPCC write a number of its reports. But many of the people who are helping to write those reports are, in fact, not very experienced at all. And so one group that I discovered was graduate students who don't even have their PhDs yet. Now, if they were just helping with the background research, that would be one thing. But those graduate students who don't even have their PhDs are being listed as lead authors of you know, particular chapters of this climate Bible. So there are graduate students, very inexperienced people. That's very different from people at the top of their career who, you know, have, you know, are the best names in the world. Um, we the, Another group that I've discovered are actually activists, people who are on the payroll of Greenpeace and the World Wildlife Fund. Now, either you are a, you know, a collection of the world's top scientists, or you're something different. And when you have activists on the payroll of Greenpeace, that suggests that we've been sold a bill of goods. And that, in fact, what is going on is something very different from a scientific report that is objective and dispassionate. And, you know, there's no agendas at the table. Another group is, and, you know, this is very unfortunate, but because it's a UN body, the UN really is very concerned about diversity. And it wants to look, it wants 
it to make it look like this climate Bible has been written by scientists from all over the world. But when you stop and think about it, there's only a couple dozen countries in the world that have the educational infrastructure to produce top-notch scientists. And those are, you know, the developed economies, America, the UK, the Scandinavian countries, you know, Israel, you know, South Africa. There's actually very few countries that are capable of producing top-notch scientists. So the IPCC gets all of these scientists from third world countries who are not anything like one of the world's top scientists, but they, they get them to participate and because it looks good. But, you know, it, what it means is that we, are, we have been fundamentally misled as to who is actually producing these reports. So this is this is interesting because I I remember reading this in the book and and wondering okay is, do I hundred percent well I, I definitely agree that there are a lot of incompetent people on it but then I wondered okay looking at I don't have it right in front of me but looking at the IPCC charter that thing is very skewed in terms of what the mission is it's a politically set so it's a it's already a mission set by government officials to essentially say well how much do we need to stop fossil fuel production. And then the whole field is funded by government and is in that direction. It's not like Michael Mann's funding is coming from, oh, you're just a really interesting observer of climate dynamics. It's no, you can tell us how much the fossil fuel industry is messing up the world. So I wonder, I want to get into the individual Greenpeace types and stuff, but why is such an organization legitimate or, or or necessary. It seemed like maybe you'd have like a group of climate experts, but the, it seems like the whole deck is, deck is stacked, no matter who, what top scientist is on it, including frauds like Michael Mann. Well, you see, here's here's the issue, and you know this is very a very important point you've raised is that we have been told that this is merely a UN body comprised of the world's top scientists who look at all the research and tell us what's going on. That's what we are told the IPCC's purpose is. But in fact, the IPCC's purpose is somewhat actually different. The UN Framework on Climate Change, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, is the body that meets that tries to negotiate global climate change treaties. You know, those are the people who came up with the Kyoto Protocol. And in order to negotiate about climate change, you need a base point to start from. You need everyone to be starting from the same page, to be reading from the same book. So in fact, the real purpose of producing these reports is is to provide a, pay, a basis for politicians to negotiate a climate change treaty. So yes, we're told it's scientific, but in fact, this is a political body writing reports for another political body so that there can be political treaties signed. And this is part of the problem is that it's, it took me about two years of research to figure that out because, because all you read in in, in normal media reports is, oh, it's the scientific body with, you know, the world's t brightest, t you know, best and brightest writing this report. But in fact, there's all this other stuff going on. So, 
you know, the IPCC is coming out with a new report this September. Installment one will be released this September. You're going to be hearing all kinds of things about it in the news. When you do, remember this. This is not a scientific body. It's a political body. The scientists who who are participating have been recommended and chosen by politicians, by political entities. It's not like the science bodies of the world, the science academies decided, to elect to you know select the IPCC's authors. That's not how it happens, and you know that would be problematic anyway because they have become so politicized. But this is politicians who have set up and this this body and who have chosen the people to be on it, and it is serving a political end. Yeah, one one point I've been thinking about as I read your book and and read other books is of to what extent are are organizations valuable and why in some fields, you know, why is there not an organization promoting E equals MC squared uh, as a consensus? And it's generally because if you have a good enough theory, people accept it and they're willing to prove it and they're willing to uh, explain it to people. And it strikes me that this, it reminds me as like, if I look at a lot of the atrocities in history, they happen when people take a speculative areas of science and turn them into dogma. So, for example, with eugenics, they'd often say, oh, well, everyone knows that evolution is true. Okay. But then they'd go into this incredibly speculative and ultimately false thing and get consensuses and act on it. And and you have a more minor example with the low-fat movement of the U.S. government over the past couple decades, where it was just reading the history of it. It's just one contingent believed this thing, which I think has now been mostly refuted. But in any case, if they got together like you know, an international panel on fat reduction, they would get together all the top people in that field and say, okay, well, our goal is how do we come to a policy that minimizes the amount of uh, lipids in Amer- or fat in American food? And you'd get an official report. And the whole thing would be this one completely biased conclusion. And it strikes me the IPCC is, is exactly the same way. And the question should be, how does our climate work? What's the role of fossil fuels? Not How can we come to a treaty on how much to restrict fossil fuels? Exactly, exactly. So they started with the conclusion, you know, that they wanted and they started with assumptions, you know, and, and, you know, if you start, you know, we all know that whatever assumptions you start with are, are, are very uh, much going to um, affect your your conclusions and your outcome. So so the process is just you know it, it's outrageously flawed, yeah, um, and. And you know, I'm sitting here saying this organization is 25 years old. It's it it shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore. It's very prominent. It's it it plays a huge role in our lives. Why why is my book the very first book written by an outsider on the IPCC? The only other book about the IPCC that I'm aware of was written by the man who was its chairman for the first 10 years. No other journalist on the planet has bothered to take a critical look at this very prominent organization. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, well, that that was part of what uh, I, I remember reading it, or actually, I was—I like listening to things on my Kindle. So I remember listening to it, and I was just thinking, "Wow, I'm really glad someone actually," because it, it, it had occurred to me at one point, "I'd like to know more about this." And it was—it was really good to hear uh, just all the all the details. And, and I want to jump into that now because I think there is a fundamental problem in the conception of such a thing. But even knowing that, I'm surprised by just 
the egregious uh, specifics. Could you tell us a little bit more about that that Greenpeace story? Because the idea of Greenpeace being a participant is just is uh, is is I mean, almost like uh, people aren't going to like this, but like someone from you know, like an anti semite being part of a you know genetic study. Well, you know, Greenpeace has an agenda. Greenpeace is a law is uh, Greenpeace is a professional lobby group, right? Um, they and you know, they have a worldview. They're trying to sell us on that worldview. And also they have bills to pay. You know, Greenpeace started out here in Canada as a very small shoestring operation that had meetings in the, uh, in the basement of a church. And now it's buying um, custom built yachts that are worth, you know, I think it's $24 million they paid for, for their last custom built yacht. So Greenpeace is a huge multinational corporation, and it has lots of offices in lots of countries. It has lots of people's salaries to pay. It has rent to pay. Um, And so it's going to advance its own interests. So no one who works for Greenpeace can possibly be considered a, a neutral, dispassionate, disinterested scientist. And so if the IPCC was a a group of those kinds of people, you would not find Greenpeace employees, but you do. And, um, you know, perhaps the most prominent one is is a man named Bill Hare, William Hare, H-A-R-E. He is, um, I think he is from, he's, he's um, from Amsterdam originally. He's associated with a, a climate research institute in Germany. And the IPCC, um, you know, um, will say he, that's his affiliation, this Climate Institute. They won't actually tell you outright that he is a Greenpeace spokesperson, that he's been em- employed by Greenpeace for decades. You have to figure that out. And, um, you know, when the last report came out in 2007, there was a, you know, the summary of summaries that was written. There were only something like, I think it was 40 people out of the thousands who'd participated participated in writing this 3,000-page report, there was something like 40 or 43 people who were part of the core writing team to write the summary of summaries. Well, Bill Hare from Greenpeace was one of those people. So when you look at the IPCC, you don't find the world's top scientists. Right at the heart of the IPCC, you find Greenpeace. And, um, you know, in my view, the World Wildlife Fund is even worse because, you know, I have a part in my book where I say that the World Wildlife Fund has deliberately infiltrated the IPCC. And um, the WWF actually issued a press release um, and said that 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 accusation was ludicrous, um, but they didn't do anything like systematically try to refute um, what I said. And I'm a very cautious, very careful journalist. I do not say things unless I'm confident that I can back them up with proof in black and white. But I've come to the conclusion that the WWF deliberately set out to infiltrate the IPCC. So you find numerous chapters in the IPCC's late last report in which there were asso- scientists who have associated themselves publicly with the WWF writing it. And in in, in fact, one third of the chapters ha- were led by someone with a WWF affiliation. So, you know, this is outrageous. You know, either you're writing this very neutral, 
objective scientific report, or you're just a bunch of activists um, hijacking wait, wait, the UN can body. You, can you give that number again? What what fraction is WWF? Okay, so now I'm going to just open up a file here and double check my numbers because it's been a while since I, I've I've been talking about this in public. But so what we find here is okay. So let me see. All right. Okay. Two-thirds of the chapters in the 2007 report had at least one WWF-affiliated scientist working on it. One-third of the chapters were actually led by an, I, a WWF-affiliated scientist. So now, there are usually two leaders. Sometimes there's a few more, but usually two leaders for every chapter. So in one-third of the chapters, and there were 44 chapters altogether, 15 chapters was actually being led by a scientist who has documented public links to a lobby group. And the WWF is even bigger and wealthier than Greenpeace. You know, and the WWF is the is the group that's brought us Earth Hour, okay? They, they started out being concerned about saving um, animals from extinction, and now climate change is their big, big um, campaign. Yeah, so, that that I mean, I think people should pause on that. Uh, I mean that that statistic. I mean, it would be the equivalent of if if you just I mean, imagine someone found out that you had a new climate organization and two thirds of the you know chapters were authored by people affiliated with, say, the Heritage Foundation. Exactly. I think the media would be all over that one. Exactly. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, one of the women who is working on this new report that's coming out in September, or the or installment one will be coming out in September, they're going to release it in three installments. Um, you know, this woman's name is Jennifer Morgan. She's a former chief spokesperson on climate change for the WWF, okay? I'm sure she's a very pleasant human being, but she is not one of the world's top scientists. She has spent her entire career working as an for activist green groups. What is she doing now helping the IPCC prepare its latest report? What is she doing there? You know, and that question alone, you know, until someone can give us a a reasonable answer to that question we shouldn't trust a word the ipcc says we just shouldn't yeah and i think it's all fairly clearly points out you know points to this as a political organization uh with an ideological purpose with a preset goal that you know has to you know it just it's it's pretty standard for it to to bring fellow travelers along and you would never i mean the thing is you would never see by accident someone from the other side being the lead author which which for a more neutral thing would be expected you know oh maybe it's a democrat this time maybe it's a republican no you know exactly what the ideology is going to be without sight unseen yes and you know to be to to just be very um you know very precise here there are occasions when, you know, one of the lead authors on a report will be from um, an oil company, for example. That happens occasionally. It's pretty rare. 
And if you look at what that person contributes, um, you know, they're they are often very specific about, you know, I have an expertise in this very specific area and I've written this much of the report, these two paragraphs. Um, you know, it is true that they do have some input from some people that you would think are uh, you know, on the other side of the issue, you know, and that's, that's, you know, when that seems to be one of the responses to my book is to point to a few people from oil companies and to say, you know, but we have these guys. Yes. But, you know, one of the things about oil companies is they've gotten very good at pretending that they're, uh, they're, they're even more concerned about the environment than we are. And, um, and, and you know, they, they have whole solar divisions. So just because the person is from Shell Oil does not necessarily mean they aren't actually a green activist themselves within their own organization. So there are a few voices that you would definitely say, um, you know, is, is um, might provide some hypothetical balance, but it's really skewed. You will not go through the last IPCC report and find that two thirds of the of the report contain uh, of those chapters are have people from oil companies. It's you know it happens, but it happens quite rarely in comparison. Well, I think this also connects to the point you made about the, the summary for policymakers being disproportionately influential. I mean, there's certainly many scientists, including some we've had on Power Hour, who have participated in this. I mean, Richard Lindzen has, has participated in it. We have a, an open letter right now from that includes many scientists, and several of them have participated in the IPCC. Uh, a lot of them have, have left or refused mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. participate. Uh, but there are better people in these organizations, but they tend to be on the, okay, I think I think the conclusion is generally, I think this is a legitimate enterprise somewhat, and I'll contribute my own expertise. But then, uh, I'd like you to elaborate on this. There are people who have done that uh, innocently and then felt like their research has been used corruptly. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, Paul Ryder is a malaria expert, and he's a great example of that, where um, he, um, you know, the we're told that this, this is a report written by the world's top experts, but the very first time that the IPCC's report dealt with malaria, they didn't actually have anyone on that working on that chapter who had ever published a single research paper on malaria. They got um, you know, some of them were graduate students and some of them were public health doctors who are, you know, um, people who are in public health. That's the branch of medicine that where you find the activists, right? So, the, so re really the chapter was put together by some climate modelers, some public health um, uh, physicians and, and PhD students. They didn't have anyone with any expertise in malaria. So the report comes out and Paul Ryder, who is considered one of the world's top experts, um, blows a head gasket and basically starts complaining and says, you know, what they've written is amateurish. No one who understands anything about malaria would ever have said something like that. So to give the IPCC credit, they invited him to participate the next time they were doing a, a, one of their big um, reports, which, you know, okay, but the problem is he found that he couldn't stand it. Um, he's tried to work with them. He tried to say to them, um, you know, no, actually, the research says X, but you're trying to say Y. Um, and eventually, he just gave up and he 
he resigned. And he actually had a bit of a struggle to get them to take his name off of their report because for a while they said, well, you participated a little, your name goes on there. And he said, well, but you're saying things that I don't agree with and I don't believe in and it's not supported by the scientific research, so take my name off. So yes, there there are a number of scientists who started out trying to work with the IPCC and have basically since left in disgust. So I can you talk a little bit about the the representatives? Because I think there is this idea that you know the for I, I could say a lot about just the UN being viewed as the the ideal vehicle for scientific inquiry. Given the it's inquiry on anything, given given it, it includes every manner of country in the world, educated, uneducated, you know, civilized, barbaric, uh, peaceful, warring. Just the idea that somehow bringing all these guys together. It's going to lead to some sort of scientific magic, I think, is is bizarre. Uh, but I think it's particularly, these are political representatives primarily, right? It's not that, oh, you know, America's putting its top scientist as the representative and then Denmark is putting its top scientist. Well, exactly. The, the Basically, people get nominated and then the IPCC, um, you know, a core group of people who, who are the administrators at the IPCC basically pick and choose. Um you know, and and one of the things that I've long said is that if these are the world's top scientists, if these are really highly credentialed people, part of your process is you get a look to look at their CVs. You evaluate them based on their CVs. So once you choose the people who are going to be working on this report and you put aside all the CVs of the other people that you didn't choose, why aren't you making those CVs public? Why can the public not look at the expertise of the people? people that you are insisting are the world's top experts. You know, this is this is um, the 21st century. There's such a thing as the internet. You have a website. Why don't you upload those CVs so we can see for ourselves? And they refuse to do so. We're supposed to just trust them. And, you know, trusting any government organization is not a good idea. It's never a good idea. There needs to be checks and balances. There needs to be access to information. And my suspicion is that the reason that they will not um, post these CVs is because it would be immediately obvious that the CVs of many of the people they have chosen, particularly, and you know, I'm sorry to harp on this, but this is the reality we're dealing with, particularly the people who have been um, chosen to represent third world countries, it would become clear that they're actually bureaucrats, that they are not scientists, that they have almost no scientific background, but they have been put forward by their government. Many of those governments are undemocratic, terribly corrupt. And this is, you know, being a delegate, being participating in the IPCC is a way to reward your friends. It has nothing to do in many countries with scientific expertise. So when these when these delegates are, I mean, there's this idea of okay, everyone has a consensus, and so for example, the UN comes with, out with this idea that well, two degrees Celsius is the maximum temperature the Earth can handle. Otherwise, everything is going to, you know, be horrible. It doesn't matter that it's been that temperature before or higher. There have been mammals, whatever. Everyone agrees. What what's going on in that room? Is it just some sort of horse trading madness? 
Well, actually, there are a number of different steps. Okay, so first of all, the the chapters, the individual chapters get written. And the authors, so the scientists are the authors, will write those chapters. But it's important to understand that they're given an outline. Okay, they're not just told, okay, your, your topic is sea level rise. Go read all the research on sea level rise and summarize it for us and tell us which, which research papers are you think are compelling and persuasive and tell us what the state of uh, our knowledge is. That's not what happens. In fact, about two years prior to when the authors get involved, you know, a very small group of people who run the IPCC sit down and they write a detailed outline. You know, there's going to be a section on this. There's going to be a section on that. The subheading here is going to be called X. And this is so precise that one of the things I've discovered with the with the report that is currently in progress is that the um, authors at a certain point got some feedback. And many of the people who provided feedback said, the title of your chapter is confusing. It's called, it has the word systems. If you change that to ecosystems, it would be less confusing. <laughs> but what, but because the outline was written a number of years ago by the top officials, the authors do not have the authority to make that three letter change. They cannot change the title of their chapter from systems to ecosystems. In order to, for that change to happen, it has to go through several levels of meetings of, of the IPCC brass. Okay, so when you're told that the scientists have written this chapter, they've written what they were told to write about. They were to, given um, lengths, you know, you, can, you have so many words, and you have to write about these things and if we didn't list a topic, it doesn't matter how interesting you think it is or how important it appears to be in the scientific literature at the moment, there's no place for it. So it's very structured. So first there's the authors who write the report. And then the report, there is a summary of the report. Okay, so we take, we take 3,000 pages and we're going to write a few summaries for each section of the three sections. Well, what happens with the summary is that the authors, the scientists, only draft that summary. Then that summary is discussed in a meeting. And the meeting is attended by politicians and diplomats and bureaucrats. There are some scientists present, but the vast majority of the people who have come to an IPCC plenary meeting are, are, are political people, okay? And those political people go through the summary that the scientists have written and say, well, that sentence is okay. Is everyone fine with that sentence? Okay, let's move on to the next sentence. No, no, though, no, that country wants to change that word because, you know, their government has a problem with that word. So these meetings that, that finalize what the summary is going to say can go on all night long. People who have attended them say that it, often it's a matter of attrition. It depends on which country has enough people there to outlast everyone else. Um, and, and the summary gets finalized by politicians and bureaucrats and diplomats. It's not the scientists who write the summary. And as I said before, the summary is what actually what gets read by people. So we're told this is a scientific document. What we're not told is that 
scientists don't have the last word on what that the most important part of that scientific document actually says. Now, why have you just heard this now? The IPCC has been around for 25 years. Why has the press not been telling us that this is a highly politicized process, that scientists have to make way for what the politicians want the report to say? I, I, wow. The thing that, that most shocks me about that, that you highlight, and I hadn't thought about even when I read the book, was this issue of the outline. Because I think, just as a writer myself, if I think about what an outline is, is an outline is a series of steps leading to a certain conclusion. Now, a, a single person making an argument, of course I need to have an outline, but it's the but I can't write an outline for you. I can't say, hey, Donna, here's your outline. Because what if the premises are wrong, or what if you uh, disagree with them? And so the idea that you're going to have an outlined uh, thing leading to a conclusion that the only thing that's up for grabs for you as a, as a scientist are the details is just so wrong, particularly because it's your, the whole idea is that this is sharing research of new and often speculative science. If it was just a textbook, yeah, but then you wouldn't need thousands of, of people. So the whole, I just want to stress to people how, how dogmatic and, and corrupt it is to give to say we're going to survey the research, but we're going to tell you, but we know the conclusion in advance and we know the key premises in advance. Those are two completely incompatible things, to have the conclusion and subconclusion set in advance and then to survey a field. And also what it does is it, it, it chooses which questions are going to be asked and which questions are not going to be addressed, right? And Judith Curry is a climate scientist um, at Georgia Tech, and um, she does a wonderful blog online, judithcurry.com. Judith Curry believes that global warming is somewhat caused by human activity, and, you know, um, she thinks that society should be responding. So my, the reason I'm saying that is Judith Curry is not a climate skeptic, but she has been highly critical of the IPCC, and um, and she just says this is one of the problems is the IPCC brass are deciding in advance what's important and what's not. And though they're not asking the right questions, she says. And she also, you know, after my book came out, she, she wrote a blog post about it in which she said, well, I'm really glad that my involvement with the, with the IPCC was as limited as it was because, you know, after reading this book, I am just astonished at what I've, I've, I've learned. So, you know, part of it is that, yeah, uh, you know, no one else has been doing this kind of work. The, the media hasn't been doing its job scrutinizing. So a lot of the scientists who have gotten involved with the IPCC have been very trusting and very naive, and they've thought they've been doing their part. Um, you know, for a good cause. And they really have had no idea the hornet's nest that, that, that they've walked into. All right. Well, let's, uh, since we're, we need to wrap up here, I want to give you a chance to talk uh, a little bit about what you're up to and including your blog. Because you have a, now I, I have to say I'm biased because you've written a couple of nice articles about me and CIP recently, but there's also just a great thing called The Way Nature Intended. The natural world is heartless and cruel. Yet we humans equate natural with good. Listeners to the show can imagine how uh, how excited such a title makes me. So tell us about what you're working on and, and your, including your blog. 
Well, my blog, um, my original website was noconsensus.org. And as I continued to get my research, I continued, I, I grew increasingly exasperated with people who kept insisting there's a consensus, there's a consensus. So when I started blogging, I called my blog No Fracking Consensus, which was um, a polite um a polite version of the F word. Um, and at that time I had never heard of hydraulic fracking. Oh, and wow. I had no, I had no idea that I was, um, you know, I was just using the fracking because, um, that, um, that sci-fi show that was very popular for, for a little while used the word fracking rather than the F word. Um, um, and it, it was very effective. And, and so that's what I was playing on. So my, my blog is called No Fracking, but with two Ks, um, whether, whereas fracking with hydraulic fracking is usually a CK these days. NoFrackingConsensus.com. And so I continue to blog there. I continue to be the watchdog, the media watchdog on the IPCC because no one else is really doing that, I, I'm sorry to say. Um, because I've written the one and only book about the IPCC, I would hope and expect that when their new report comes out in this September, that, um, you know, some other journalists might actually think that interviewing me or taking a look at my book would be a useful thing to do. I'm not counting on it, but, um, you know, if um, it, that would be nice if that happened. Um, I am actually um, working on a collection. Uh, I've been blogging for a few years now and so I have hundreds of blog posts and I am I am putting together a collection of blog posts and this is the first time that I've spoken about it publicly um, that will come out um, before September and those blog posts are concerned Regenda Pachori who is the chairman of the IPCC. Oh that's great. He, he has been the chairman since 2012 and um you know, I'm not someone who gets into personalities, but I think that if you have an important international body, um, one of the ways you can decide whether that body is trustworthy or not is to look at its leadership. And the leadership provided by this gentleman has been atrocious. It has been completely unacceptable. And virtually everything that this man says about his organization, in my experience, turns out to be utterly false. You know, he has told so many whoppers in public, and yet he's still the head of this organization. And if an organization feels that it's okay for this man to be in charge of it, well, that tells me a lot about the organization's values. And it tells me everything I need to know about whether I should trust that organization or not. Uh, yeah, well, that, that, is, that is really exciting. And yeah, let us let us know exactly when that comes out. And uh, we can hopefully you'll, you'll have time to come on and talk about it. I will do. Um, okay, great. So the website is nofrackingconsensus.com. Uh, it's, it's very fun to, to browse around. As, as you'll tell, Donna and I have some of the same pet topics like Bill McKibben and nature. And I'm just, I've been doing a lot of work in Canada lately, so I'm now learning about the uh, uh, character slash national hero that is David Suzuki, uh, who is against mining, apparently that completely unnecessary task of getting material elements uh, from which to live. Um, yes, so, David Suzuki is our Al Gore. <laughs> I think he's a lot more popular than, than, than Al Gore. 
is uh, I don't know who who could deserve a, a good prize less Al Gore or the IPCC. So perhaps it's good that they that they uh, shared it. But uh, anyway, yeah, thanks so much for for coming on the show and let us know when the new uh, resource comes out. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks to Donna, Donna Lafamboise. Kind of pleased with myself for being able to pronounce that. Of course, she'll she might email me and tell me that I've butchered it repeatedly. So it's somewhat of a gamble to to try to say it multiple times. Anyway, I really appreciate uh, her perspective. And uh, on a personal note, I should say I appreciate that in the last couple of weeks she has really taken a look at CIP stuff, including my book Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, and written some. Uh, some very nice things about it at nofrackingconsensus.com and I believe Men's News Daily. So uh, I appreciate that, and it's always good to have a new, you know, really new and really thoughtful uh, ally. Speaking of the book, make sure to get your copy, get multiple copies from your friends. We now have paperbacks in hand. Really nice looking, really quick read though. So nothing to be intimidated by, and you can your friends will be able to read it an hour and a half probably. You can get that at industrialprogress.com slash store. Also, at the same place, you can get the new multicolored I Love, I Love Fossil Fuels t-shirts. And as just, well, we got lots of things going on. Check out industrialprogress.com slash open letter for our new letter countering the divestment movement. And finally, make sure to go to facebook.com slash I Love Fossil Fuels to promote our efforts there. We're really going to... Uh, you know, really starting now, we're going to keep uh, expanding that, and I think you'll see some really, really cool content. If you go now, you'll already see some new content, and it's only going to get better. So make sure to like it, get your friends to like it. We want to get this in the tens of thousands as soon as possible, uh, because we should all love fossil fuels, and, and one way of, of telling the world that uh, in a very easy but very effective way is to like I love fossil fuels. So So do that, and... We will talk next week. Again, as always, next week we will have another great topic, another great guest. Uh, in terms of contacting me, as usual, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, goes to go to alex at industrialprogress.net. And I will talk to you next week. This has been Power Hour, and talk to you next Friday. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.